Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. At 3.40 a.m. on the morning of August 31st, 1888, a carter named Charles Cross made his way down the narrow avenue of Bucks Row on his way to work. In the early morning darkness, Cross stopped at the sight of a large object lying in the doorway of a horse stable. He walked closer to investigate, thinking it was a tarpaulin abandoned in the street. A few feet closer, though, he realized the figure on the ground was human. As he hesitated, unsure of how to proceed, he heard another man's approaching footsteps. It was another carter, Robert Paul, also headed to work. Cross called the other carter over, telling him that there was a woman in the street together in the dark the two men approached the figure stretched out on the ground she was lying prone her skirts pulled up to her waist tentatively they felt her hands and face finding them cold cross thought that he sensed some movement in her chest though which allowed the possibility that she was alive the men tugged her skirts down over her knees to at least cover her up and argued whether they should prop her up in the doorway they were unsettled by the whole incident though and they were both running late for work. They decided not to render further assistance on the scene, justifying their behavior by agreeing to tell the first constable they ran into on their way about what they had seen. They left the woman's body alone on Buck's Row, lying across the gateway. Minutes later, they came across Police Constable Misen. She looks to me to be either dead or drunk, Cross said to the constable, but for my part, I think she's dead. Minutes after the two carters left the body, P.C. John Neal was walking his beat when he came across the corpse lying on the ground on Buck's Row. Shining his lantern onto her face, he saw that her eyes were wide open, staring lifelessly up into the night. As P.C. John Thane approached to offer his help, Neal's lantern illuminated the gashes in the woman's throat, almost deep enough to have completely decapitated her. Upon observing the wounds, Neil sent Thane to fetch Dr. Rees Ralph Llewellyn, who pronounced her dead on sight. He judged from warmth in her extremities that she had been dead for less than half an hour. Neil himself had been within earshot of the sight only a few minutes before the body was discovered, but he had heard nothing. By then, a crowd of early risers had begun to gather, 
and Dr. Llewellyn called for the body to be moved from the scene to the mortuary. Police canvassed the area, but no one reported having seen or heard anything unusual. Inspector John Spratling arrived and consulted with Thane after the body had been taken away by ambulance. Thane indicated where the body had lain as one of the sons of Emma Green, a widow who owned a neighboring house, washed blood from the cobblestones. Llewellyn had noted that the blood had spilled from the body's throat onto the ground and was about equivalent with the volume of only two wine glasses. Ambulance workers had noted that though a bit of blood had trickled from her throat onto the street, the back of her dress and her weathered brown ulster was completely soaked in congealed blood as well. Dr. Llewellyn had gone home to bed after the body had been taken to a workhouse mortuary in Old Montague Street, but was summoned again soon afterward. While attempting to move the body from the ambulance into the morgue, Inspector John Spratling observed that unusually brutal mutilations lay beneath Nichols' clothing. Her abdomen had been slashed, a jagged cut exposing her innards from pubis to breastbone, along with additional cuts to the abdomen. The wounds had been inflicted with violent downward stabs into the victim's body. I have seen many terrible cases, Llewellyn stated later to a reporter from the Times, but never such a brutal affair as this. Llewellyn's complete post-mortem report from September 1st is lost to time, but surviving notes taken by Spratling upon an initial examination of the body summarize findings this way. Her throat had been cut from left to right, two distinct cuts being on the left side, the windpipe, gullet, and spinal cord being cut through, a bruise apparently of a thumb being on the right lower jaw, also one on the left cheek. The abdomen had been cut open from center of bottom of ribs along right side, under pelvis to left of the stomach. There the wound was jagged. The omentum, or coating of the stomach, was also cut in several places and two small stabs on private parts, all apparently done with a strong bladed knife, supposed to have been done by some left-handed person, death being almost instantaneous. Speculation arose over several points, including whether the killer was left-handed and whether perhaps he had killed her in a separate location and then left her on Buck's Row. This would seem to be supported by the fact that no one in the area had heard screaming and that she had been found lying on her back as if carefully placed. The blood at the scene also seemed to be minimal when considering the ghastly wounds to her abdomen, unless she had been killed somewhere else. That hypothesis, however, would later be dismissed. There were no trails of blood leading to the site where her body was found, and nobody had heard a carriage or other vehicle carry her to the spot. These were cobblestone streets and horse-drawn carriages were easy to hear from blocks away. Additionally, Dr. Llewellyn confirmed that the blood from the lacerations to her abdomen had mostly congealed into the body itself. All the wounds had shown signs of being made with the same knife, a strong bladed knife, moderately sharp and used with great violence, according to the doctor. Other facts about the possible killer were unclear, but Llewellyn speculated that he might have had some knowledge of human anatomy due to the fact that he had attacked the vital organs and veins of the victim. The blood spatter implied, however, that none of the lacerations were what ultimately killed the victim. If her throat were cut first, there would have been far more blood, presumably spattered against the wall of the stable or further across the cobblestones, rather than pooled directly under her head. Instead, 
Experts agree that it is very likely the woman was manually choked to death before being mutilated. The entire act would have taken place in about five minutes between 3.30 and 3.40 a.m., and inspectors acknowledged that the approach of Charles Cross may have even interrupted and scared the killer away. Early suspects were hard to find, and the only men initially pursued were three horse slaughterers who had the late night shift at Barber's Slaughterhouse near Bucks Row on Winthrop Street. These men had been some of the first observers on the street when Neil and Thane had discovered the corpse, but when interviewed separately, they were able to confirm that they had been working on Winthrop Street at the time that the murder was taking place. There was no physical evidence, and Victorian policing conventions prioritized getting bodies off the streets and cleaned up as soon as possible. These issues were merely a foreshadowing of the frustrations and investigatory nightmares to come in trying to weed out this unusual killer. Identifying the woman so disfigured by her attack was daunting at first. She was about five feet two and three inches tall with dark hair, eyes, and skin. Her hair was beginning to go gray with middle age and she was missing three teeth. Her clothing was well-worn, indicating that she was likely a woman down on her luck. This assumption was supported by a helpful find. Her petticoat showed the mark of Lambeth Workhouse PR. Investigators called for someone from the workhouse on Prince's Road to come to the mortuary and help identify the body. Marianne Monk arrived and recognized the body in the morgue as Marianne Nichols, who had lived in that workhouse months earlier. Word of the murder got around Whitechapel, and Ellen Holland soon came from the lodge house at 18 Thrall Street as well to confirm that the victim was indeed Marianne, but everyone knew her as Polly. Ellen was moved to tears at the sight of her. Despite Polly's reputation as a drunk, Ellen found her to be an agreeable person and reported that she was a very clean woman who always seemed to keep to herself. Ellen had seen her at 2.30 and they had spoken, at which point Polly had told her that she had drunk up all her DOS money, meaning money for her room, that evening and had nothing left for the boarding house. Murders in Whitechapel were fairly common but this was a brutal murder, most likely committed by a psychopath. The newspapers the following day all carried the story, many offering exaggerated accounts, but the news died out in a few days, and people in Whitechapel got back to the business of trying to make it through another day. Nine days after the body was found, and only two after her body was laid to rest, however, another one of the Whitechapel murderer's victims would be brought into the mortuary, and the newspapers and Whitechapel would never be the same again. In August of 1888, the City of London was well on its way to becoming a world center for industry and trade. People from every corner of the world were arriving to experience a city complete with people moving steam trams, modern shops, and a growing skyline. 
By the summer of 1888, 900,000 people, Poles, Jews escaping persecution in Russia, Irish, and others from all over Europe, were eking out a subsistence in the two East End districts known as Whitechapel and Spitalfield. In the daytime, people with money would come from the city for the purpose of slumming, seeing what kind of deal they could get from the shops and vendors, and leaving before nightfall. Men would come from the city, as well as the local docks, to enjoy a brush with the lowlifes in the bars, and find old and worn down, often toothless prostitutes, who would sell their time for three pence. Whitechapel had a police force which was stretched to the limit with the growing number of robberies, rapes, and murders. Their methods were simple, due to the lack of tools they were given. Canvas for witnesses, round up suspects, interview them, hold them if they had hard evidence, let them go if they didn't. Fingerprinting had not yet been accepted as a means for identifying criminals. There was no forensic capability. They did not photograph crime scenes, except beginning with the Ripper murders, they did photograph the eyes of the victims, hoping to catch the image of the last thing that victim saw before death. That kind of tells you where science was at the time of the Ripper murders. So-called experts denounced the new ideas of fingerprinting and crime scene photography, saying it was a waste of time and money. Keep in mind that at that time they had no phones, no computers back at the office, and no cars. They patrolled on foot in blue uniform with a distinct tall hat, a whistle, a handgun, and a billy club. In areas like Whitehall, which we will be in in just a few minutes, they covered almost every block during the Ripper murders, but the city blocks were much different, as you will see. The Crime Investigation Department, or CID, had their hands full in the 1880s with constant terror threats from the Irish nationalists, who were using knives as a favorite tool to assassinate any and all English representatives who opposed a free Irish state, especially the Chief Secretary of Ireland and his deputies. The man appointed to govern Ireland's affairs, therefore the man at the top of the kill list. Just preceding the Ripper murders, a terror group called the Invincibles failed numerous times to kill Chief Secretary Buckshot Forster, before he resigned his office, in protest of the Kilmarham Treaty, or so he said. The group then settled on a plan to kill permanent undersecretary Thomas Henry Burke at the Irish office on the day that the new chief secretary Cavendish had arrived to begin his term. The first assassination was committed by Joe Brady, who stabbed Burke with a 12-inch knife, followed in short order by Tim Kelly, who stabbed Cavendish. Both men used surgical knives as they would be more quiet. Thomas Miles, resident surgeon at the nearby Dr. Stevens Hospital, was summoned to render medical assistance to the victims, who both died from their wounds. These types of assassinations, carried out by men who had no qualms regarding using surgical knives to kill innocents, alerted Scotland Yard to the fact that the Irish and nationalists would stop at nothing. A special branch was created to investigate their activities and prevent terrorist murders and kidnappings. A large part of the detective force was busy trying to uncover Irish nationalists, or Fenian, as they were called, plots. When the Ripper crimes took front and center, a number of suspects, most notably Cutbush, Kaminsky, Druitt, Osmog, and Dr. Francis Tumblety, all names that we'll get to as we go forward, 
and all first-rate deviants with a predilection for hating women and known to be Irish sympathizers earned their own dossiers at Special Branch. It was a top theory that the Irish nationalists had recruited one of these men to create havoc on London's East End to distract Scotland Yard. Scotland Yard had its hands full when the Ripper murders began to get national press coverage. And as the days progressed and criticism intensified, making the chief inspector position a definite hot seat. Chief Inspector Warren resigned the same day the first Ripper murder took place, and the man slated for his position was sent on a two-week rest and recovery trip out of country. That left the force with confused leadership and low morale. Not a place the police wanted to be in when it came to trying to solve a rash of brutal murders in crowded Whitechapel. To give you an idea of what it was like trying to catch a killer in this part of the city, here's a part of one of the chief inspector's memoirs. The chief of police from Austin, Texas, came to see me, said the inspector, and offered me a great deal of advice. But when I showed him this place, Castle Alley, and the courts around it, he took off his hat and said, I apologize. I never saw anything like this before. We've nothing like it in all of America. He said that at home an officer could stand on a street corner and look down four different streets and see all that went on on them for a quarter of a mile off. Now, you know, I might put two regiments of police in this half mile of district, and half of them would be as completely out of sight and hearing of the others as though they were in separate cells of a prison. To give you an idea of it, my men formed a circle around the spot where one of the murders took place, guarding, they thought, every entrance and approach. And within a few minutes... They found 50 people inside the lines. They had come in through two passageways, which my men, familiar with the area, could not find. And then, you know, these people never lock their doors, and the murderer has only to lift the latch of the nearest house and walk through it and right out the back door. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Between 1750 and 1850, during an era known as the Industrial Revolution, Britain experienced an influx of Irish immigrants who swelled the populations of the major cities, including the East End of London. From 1882, Jewish refugees escaping from pogroms in Tsarist Russia and other areas of Eastern Europe emigrated into the same area. The parish of Whitechapel in London's East End became increasingly overcrowded work and housing conditions worsened, and a significant economic underclass developed. Robbery, violence, and alcohol dependency were commonplace, and the endemic poverty drove many women to prostitution. In October 1888, London's Metropolitan Police Service estimated that there were 62 brothels and 1,200 women working as prostitutes in Whitechapel. The economic problems were accompanied by a steady rise in social tensions. One study of the time showed that 55% of children born in Whitehall died before the age of five. Anti-Semitism, crime, nativism, racism, social disturbance, and severe deprivation 
influenced public perceptions that Whitechapel was a notorious den of immorality. The Metropolitan Police Force, by 1880, had moved to a new location at the Victoria Embankment at Whitehall Place, overlooking the River Thames, near the Ministry of Defense, and it was named New Scotland Yard. As it turned out, the New Scotland Yard was built on a crime scene, as they soon discovered. In September of 1888, the arms of a female body were found in the river, and one month later, the headless torso was found in a cellar in the vacant and still unfinished New Scotland Yard. The remains were found by a construction worker who claimed that the remains had been placed there after September 29th of that year, because that was the date when the cellar was last visited by workers. The body had been wrapped in cloth and tied with a string. The police surgeon Thomas Bond matched the previously discovered arms with the body, and soon the newspapers, which, within days of this find, were covering Jack the Ripper's first three murders, were printing extra editions. Metro police discounted the theory, stating that the woman was 24 and apparently belonged to an upper social class. They also concluded that her body had been dissected by someone with knowledge of anatomy because it had a tourniquet to restrict blood flow, and her uterus had been removed from her body. It was estimated that she had been dead two months before she was found. With permission from the police, one reporter found a left leg from the body using a Spitbergen hound. The head and limbs were never found. It became an ironic fact that what was then called the New Scotland Yard, one of the world's most respected crime agencies, was built on a crime scene related to a still unsolved murder, and it's still possible that Jack the Ripper committed this one. No one knows for sure. This unsolved case is called the Whitechapel Murder Mystery. The New Scotland Yard has since moved to better digs, but in 1888... They were up to their necks in murders. And this one did involve the removal of a uterus, something to keep in mind for future discussion. There were a large number of attacks against women in the East End during this time, and the different methods of attack led to uncertainty as to how many victims were killed by the same person. Eleven separate murders stretching from the 3rd of April, 1888, to February 13, 1891, were included in a London Metropolitan Police Service investigation and were known collectively in the police docket as the Whitechapel Murders. Opinions vary as to whether these murders should be linked to the same culprit, but five of the eleven Whitechapel murders, known as the Canonical Five, are widely believed to be the work of Jack the Ripper. How did they get the name the Canonical Five? Sir Melville McNaughton was brought into the CID in 1889, and although he was not directly involved in the Ripper investigations, he was an avid student of the case. Before working for the police, he managed his father's tea farms in Bengal, India. He then returned to England in 1888, was appointed as assistant chief constable in 1889, and then chief constable in 1890. McNaughton had a set of three suspects that he favored after studying police records of the case. Their names? Druitt, Kazminsky, and Ozcog. He summarized the reasons for his strong suspicions in the famous McNaughton Memorandum, in which he also detailed what would become known as the Canonical Five Ripper Victims. The report was written in 1894, but was not released into the public view until 1959, after which the term Canonical Five came into popular use. Most experts point to deep throat slashes, abdominal and genital area mutilation, 
removal of internal organs, and progressive facial mutilations as the distinctive features of the Ripper's modus operandi, or MO. The first two cases in the Whitechapel murders file, those of Emma Elizabeth Smith and Martha Tabram, are not included in what is described as the canonical five, meaning those closest fitting the method of murder. But one of those still could have been committed by Jack the Ripper because there were some similarities. Martha Tabram was killed on the 7th of August, 1888. She had suffered 39 stab wounds. The savagery of the murder, the lack of obvious motive, and the closeness of the location, George Yard in Whitechapel, and date to those of the later Ripper murders, led police to link them. The attack differs from the canonical murders in that Tabram was stabbed rather than slashed at the throat and abdomen, and many experts do not connect it with the later murders because of the difference in the wound pattern. The canonical five Ripper victims are Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. Nichols' body was discovered as earlier related at about 3.40 a.m. on Friday the 31st of August, 1888, in Bucks Row, now Durwood Street, Whitechapel. The throat was severed by two cuts, and the lower part of the abdomen was partly ripped open by a deep, jagged wound. Several other incisions on the abdomen were caused by the same knife. Chapman's body was discovered about 6 a.m. on Saturday, the 8th of September, 1888, near a doorway in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields, a slum section which bordered the Whitechapel area. As in the case of Marianne Nichols, the throat was severed by two cuts. The abdomen was slashed entirely open, and it was later discovered that the uterus had been removed. At the inquest, one witness described seeing Chapman at about 5.30 a.m., with a dark-haired man of shabby, genteel appearance. At 5.30 on Saturday morning, September 8th, a Mrs. Long was passing down Henbury Street from home and going to Spitalfields Market. She was certain of the time, as the clock at the Black Eagle Brewery had just struck the half hour when she passed 29 Henbury Street. She was on the same side of the street as number 29, and outside the house, she saw a man and woman on the pavement talking. The man's back was turned towards Brick Lane, while the woman's was towards the Spitalfields Market. They were talking together and were close against the shutters of number 29. Mrs. Long saw the woman's face, but she did not see the man's except to notice that he was dark. She described him as wearing a brown deerstalker hat, and she thought he had on a dark coat, but was not quite certain of that. She could not say what the age of the man was, but he looked to be over 40 and appeared to be a little taller than the deceased. He appeared to be a foreigner and had a shabby genteel appearance. Witness could hear them talking loudly and she overheard him say to the woman, Will you? To which she replied, Yes. They remained there as Mrs. Long passed and she continued on her way without looking back. Mrs. Long saw nothing to indicate that they were not sober and apparently it was not an unusual thing to see men and women talking together at that hour in that locality. Chapman's body was discovered about a half an hour later, near a doorway in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street, Spitalfields. Her throat severed by two cuts. The abdomen was slashed entirely open. It was later discovered that the uterus had been removed. At the inquest, one witness described seeing Chapman at about 5.30 a.m. with a dark-haired man of shabby genteel appearance. On the 12th of September, she went to the mortuary and identified the body of Chapman 
as being the woman she had seen on the morning of the 8th. Stride and Eddowes were killed in the early morning of Sunday the 30th of September, 1888. Stride's body was discovered at about 1 a.m. in Dutfield's yard, off Burner Street, now Enrique's Street, in Whitechapel. The cause of death was one clear-cut incision which severed the main artery on the left side of the neck. The absence of mutilations to the abdomen has led to uncertainty about whether Stride's murder should be attributed to the Ripper or whether he was interrupted during the attack. Witnesses thought they saw Stride with a man earlier that night but gave differing descriptions. Some said that her companion was fair, others dark. Some said that he was shabbily dressed, others well-dressed. We'll cover those descriptions more thoroughly later on in this episode. Edo's body was found in Mitra Square in the city of London, three quarters of an hour after strides. The throat was severed and the abdomen was ripped open by a long, deep, jagged wound. The left kidney and the major part of the uterus had been removed. A local man named Joseph Lawende had passed through the square with two friends shortly before the murder, and he described seeing a fair-haired man of shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Edo's. His companions were unable to confirm his description. Edo's and Stride's murders were later called the double event. Part of Edo's bloodied apron was found at the entrance to a tenement in Goulston Street, Whitechapel. Some writing on the wall above the apron piece became known as the Goulston Street Graffito and seemed to implicate a Jew or Jews but it was unclear whether the graffito was written by the murderer as he dropped the apron piece or was merely incidental. Such graffiti were commonplace in Whitechapel. Police Commissioner Charles Warren feared that the graffito might spark anti-Semitic riots and ordered it washed away before dawn. The fifth of the canonical victims, Mary Jane Kelly's mutilated and disemboweled body was discovered lying on a bed in the single room where she lived at 13 Miller's Court off Dorset Street, Spitalfields, at 10.45 a.m. on Friday the 9th of November, 1888. And keep in mind that all of these women lived within a 10-minute or less walk of each other. In Kelly's case, her throat had been severed down to the spine and the abdomen almost emptied of its organs. The heart was missing. The canonical five murders were perpetrated at night or close to a weekend, either at the end of a month or a week or so after. The mutilations became increasingly severe as the series of murders proceeded, except for that of Stride, whose attacker may have been interrupted. Nichols was not missing any organs. Chapman's uterus was taken. Eddowes had her uterus and a kidney removed and her face mutilated, and Kelly's body was eviscerated and her face hacked away, though only her heart was missing from the crime scene. Jack the Ripper was the first serial killer in a large city and the first serial killer to receive a large amount of publicity. The public became hooked on the story. The newspaper coverage both fascinated and horrified the public. While the murders increased in violence, the press published more ghastly reports. Sometimes investigations with findings were published, which often led to public mobs attacking innocent suspects and interviewers. The newspapers were in high gear and the public became involved, sending in tips, offering information, and producing crank letters from the man now known as the Whitechapel murderer. Some men walked into police headquarters and confessed 
and were held long enough to make the front page of the papers before they were investigated and released. The police weren't holding back much evidence to the crime scene, and the papers were reporting every small detail, leaving themselves wide open not only for copycat killers, but for the potential of newsmen to send fake letters from the killer announcing his next murder in order to spur newspaper readership. Sensationalism was the order of the day, as headlines were created out of lies and innuendo, or facts subverted to sell more copy to a public now clamoring for new information. Artists' renditions of the murder scene and cartoons which made the police appear to be bumbling fools were commonplace. And there was tremendous pressure on Scotland Yard to solve the case. When Marianne Nichols' body was discovered on August 31st of 1888, local merchants petitioned the home office of the Metropolitan Police to offer a reward for information leading to the killer's capture that very day. The first request came from Ellen P. Walter & Sons, local clothing manufacturers. It would not be the last. Local business leaders were concerned about the effect the killings would have on productivity and sales in the East End. These men banded together to create the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, offering their own reward after being turned down numerous times by the Home Office and filling the streets with their own men and detectives in addition to the police that were already there. Time and time again throughout the autumn of 1888, requests came from citizens to offer a reward. And time and time again they were denied. Sir Charles Warren was adamant that a reward would do nothing but encourage more false leads, something that already saturated the detectives working the case. As the police began interviewing those who lived or lodged in the evil quarter mile, the local prostitutes began telling them about a sinister character who they had nicknamed Leather Apron. He would demand what little money they had, and if they refused, he would beat them senseless. All they could tell police was that he wore a leather apron, the type of butcher or leather shop worker would wear, and that his name was Jack Pizer, a Polish Jew, and that he hung around a pub called Princess Alice at the corner of Commercial and Wentworth Streets. But in the hours before they went to pick him up, the Star newspaper ran the first of several articles that terrified the local residents and caused a huge amount of frustration to the police who had hoped to keep their suspicions a closely guarded secret lest they alert the suspect to the fact that they were onto him. The headlines screamed, Leather Apron, the only name linked with the Whitechapel murders. And it went on to tell of a strange character who prowls about after midnight and told of universal fear among women and spoke of him having slippered feet and carrying a sharp leather knife. The Star's campaign to alert the populace to the noiseless menace in their midst had two effects. Firstly, John Pizer learned of the police suspicions through it and the prospect of his falling victim to a baying mob now that he was public enemy number one so terrified him that he promptly went into hiding amongst his relatives. The second effect was to have a far more sinister impact on the East End of London and its repercussions would ultimately influence the way in which police investigations were handled as the murders increased and local panic intensified. The leather apron was synonymous with workers amongst the Jewish immigrants that had been flooding into the area throughout the 1880s, fleeing persecution in Eastern Europe and Russia. The Star's articles also emphasized the suspect's Hebrew appearance, and this in turn fed a growing belief amongst the Gentile population that no Englishman could be capable of such brutal and gruesome crimes. 
Thus, anti-Semitism, which had been gaining momentum in the area for several years, showed a dramatic increase, and the police became suddenly alarmed that the press speculation concerning the murderer's ethnic origin might easily erupt into full-scale anti-Jewish rioting. Thus, by the 7th of September, 1888, the police were in the position of being desperate to find Jack Pizer, but also of playing down suggestions that they were looking for a member of the Jewish immigrant community lest their activities lead to a pogrom, meaning a riot or killing spree aimed at terrorizing a group of people because of their religious affiliation or ethnic background. Mobs were patrolling the Jewish sector when P.C. Thick, who was from the neighborhood and had known Pizer for 20 years, picked him up and brought him in for questioning. His alibis as to where he had been during the time of the August 8th murder held up, and he was released. On the 25th of September, a letter which has since been named the Dear Boss Letter arrived at the Central News Agency, which was forwarded to Scotland Yard two days later, on September 27th. It read this way. Dear Boss, I keep hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they look so clever and talk about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with it, but it went thick like glue and I couldn't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I do shall clip the lady's ears off and send the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do more work, then give it our straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Good luck. Yours truly. Jack the Ripper. Don't mind giving me the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Curse it. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha <laughs> ha. If ever there was a letter that looked like it was a crank letter written by a reporter to hype a story, this was it. The newspapers released it, knowing it would boost sales sky high and justifying it with hopes that persons reading it might be able to match the handwriting to someone they knew or were aware of. It was followed by a second letter in the same handwriting, written on both sides of a large postcard. This postcard has been dubbed the Saucy Jack Postcard, and it was postmarked and received on October 1, 1888, at the Central News Agency, one day after the killer had committed the double murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Kate Eddowes, whose bodies were discovered early in the morning on Sunday, September 30th. This letter made a direct reference to the past letter, apologized for not having enough time to get the victim's ear to the police. Then it indicated that his next murder would be a double murder. The Saucy Jack letter could possibly have been written by someone at the newspaper who knew of the double murders just discovered. The postcard does have a postmark dated October 1, meeting same-day delivery. Getting back to the murders of Stride, Eddowes, and Kelly. Take special note of the witness testimony. Elizabeth Stride, also known as Long Liz, was 45 years old, pale-complected, with light gray eyes and curly dark brown hair. She was well known in the neighborhood, and there were a number of people who testified seeing her in the hours before her death 
in Whitechapel. She was the first of the double murder, which happened early in the morning on the 30th of September, 1888. At 11 p.m. the previous night, two laborers, Jay Best and John Gardner, were going into the Bricklayer's Arms public house on Settle Street, north of Commercial Road and almost opposite Burner Street. As they went in, Stride was leaving with a short man with a dark mustache and sandy eyelashes. The man was wearing a billycock hat, morning suit, and coat. Best says they had been served in the public house and went out when me and my friends came in. It was raining very fast and they did not appear willing to go out. He was hugging and kissing her, and as he seemed a respectably dressed man, we were rather astonished at the way he was going on at the woman. Stride and her man stood in the doorway for some time hugging and kissing. The workman tried to get the man to come in for a drink, but he refused. Then they called to Stride. That's leather apron getting round you. The man and Stride moved off toward Commercial Road and Burner Street. He and the woman went off like a shot soon after 11. At 11.45 p.m., William Marshall, a laborer, saw her on Burner Street. Marshall was standing in the doorway of 64 Burner Street on the west side of the street between Fairclaw and Boyd Streets. He noticed her talking to a man in a short black cutaway coat and sailor's hat outside number 63. They were kissing and carrying on. He hears the man say, You would say anything but your prayers. At midnight, Matthew Packer, who owned a small fruit stand, claims to sell stride and a man grapes. By 1888, the Packers were living at 44 Burner Street with lodgers Sarah Harrison and Harry Douglas. Matthew ran a fruit and sweet shop from the premises. Police had found a discarded piece of grapevine stem at the scene of the murder of Stride, and Stride's shop sold bunches of grapes to passerbys coming and going from the local clubs. At 9 a.m. on the 30th of September, just hours after Stride's body had been discovered, Sergeant Stephen White called at number 44 to take statements from all the tenants. Packer claimed that he closed his shop at 12.30 a.m. that morning as he felt it was not worth staying open on account of the wet weather. When asked if he had seen anybody at the time, he replied, No, I saw no one standing about, neither did I see anyone go up the yard. I never saw anything suspicious or heard the slightest noise and know nothing about the murder until I heard of it in the morning. Packer was to retract this statement later and give what might have been a very reliable witness account but because he had denied hearing or seeing anything initially, his statement was considered too weak to be of value. Why did he deny knowing anything? Well, you figure it out. He didn't want the name of his business to be associated with the Ripper murders, thinking it would be bad for business, or he was afraid of reprisals from Jack the Ripper himself, who, as his testimony will tell us, he had seen numerous times in the area before the killing. Here is Packer's story. On the 2nd of October, two private detectives named Grand and J.H. Batchelor had found a grape stock in the drain of Dutfield's yard, the scene of the murder. They subsequently took Packer to the Golden Lane Mortuary to view the body of Catherine Eddowes, the second woman murdered that night, without telling him that she was the Mitre Square victim, in order to test his veracity. Packer did not recognize her. When he was later taken to the mortuary where Stride's body was located, he did recognize her. 
On the 4th of October, 1888, White was instructed to make further inquiries and called once again at 44 Burner Street, where Rose Packer told him that the two private detectives had called and that Matthew had gone with them to the mortuary, this time to view Stride's body. On his way there, White met Packer, who was in the company of the two detectives. Packer had seen the deceased in the mortuary and recognized her as the woman who had bought grapes from him at 11 p.m. the 29th of September. At 4 p.m. the same day, Grant and Batchelor returned to Burner Street, saying that they were to take Packer in a cab to Scotland Yard to see Sir Charles Warren. It is unlikely that Warren actually did meet Packer, and a report written by Senior Assistant Commissioner Alexander Carmichael Bruce revealed what Packer had to say. Matthew Packer keeps a shop in Burner Street, has a few grapes in the window, both black and white. On Saturday night at about 11 p.m., a young man, between 25 and 30 years old, about 5 foot 7, with a long black coat buttoned up, soft felt hat, kind of a Yankee hat, rather broad shoulders, rather quick in speaking, rough voice. I sold him a half pound of black grapes. A woman came up with him from back church end, the lower end of the street. She was dressed in black frock and jacket, fur round bottom of jacket with black crepe bonnet. She was playing with a flower like, like a geranium, white outside and red inside. Packer identified the woman at the St. George's Mortuary as the one he saw that night. They passed by as though they were going up Commercial Road, but instead of going up, they crossed to the other side of the road to the board school and were there for about half an hour till about 11.30 p.m., talking to one another. I then shut up my shutters. Before they passed over opposite to my shop, they waited near to the club for a few minutes, apparently listening to the music. I saw no more of them after I shut up my shutters. I put the man down as a young clerk. He had a frock coat on, no gloves. He was about one and a half inches or two or three inches, a little higher than she was. Due to the drastic changes in his statements, Packer was considered unreliable and was not called to the inquest, despite the possible importance of his testimony. The Illustrated Police News felt he was important enough to have Inspector Aberlein depicted as taking down Packer's details, and Aberlein was the top inspector attached to the case. Packer returned to the news again, when on the 27th of October, he claimed to have seen the man who brought grapes on the night of Stride's murder yet again. Mr. Matthew Packer, who keeps a fruit shop near the gateway where the Burner Street murder was committed, stated on Wednesday that he felt just then greatly alarmed owing to his having seen a man exactly like the one who bought some grapes from him for the murdered woman's stride, a short time before the murder was committed. He alleges that he had often seen the man before the murder, as well as the woman, but he had not seen anyone resembling the man since the murder, Saturday night. He was then standing with his fruit stall in the commercial road when he observed the man staring him full in the face. After passing and repassing him several times, the man got into the roadway and looked at him in a menacing manner. Packer was so terrified that he left his stall and asked a shoeblack, who was near, to keep his eye on the man. His fear was that the fellow was going to stab him. No sooner, however, had he called the shoeblack's attention to the man than the latter ran away and jumped onto a passing tram car. Another incident involving Packer occurred at the time of the discovery of the Pynchon Street murder in 1889. He claimed to have been attacked on his doorstep by somebody who mentioned the Ripper, 
spending three weeks at a London hospital as a result. This story is as yet unconfirmed by contemporary sources, however. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. At 12.35 a.m. that evening, Police Constable William Smith sees stride with a young man on Burner Street opposite the International Working Men's Educational Club, which is an entertainment facility frequented mainly by Jewish men. The man is described as 28 years old, dark coat, and hard deerstalker hat. This hard deerstalker hat does not match the description that Packer gave of the hat of the man who bought the grapes. That hat, he said, was soft black felt. A deerstalker hat has bills, or peaks, on both front and back. If you can imagine the hat worn by Sherlock Holmes, then you know the style. Being black, it might have been hard to tell if the fabric was soft-looking or not. He was carrying a parcel approximately six inches high and 18 inches in length. The package is wrapped in newspaper. That could have been the grapes. And there was one more witness called Israel Schwartz. In an article written by Robert J. McLaughlin called Interpreting Lipsky, McLaughlin tells us that of all the witnesses in the Ripper case, Israel Schwartz is unique. He's the only person to see any type of attack on a victim and the only one to be confronted by a Ripper suspect. Schwartz's statement does not survive, but the details are given by Chief Inspector Swanson in a report dated October 19, 1888, and they're worth repeating here, as well as the testimony given again by Schwartz to a reporter with the Star newspaper, which is different. 12.45 a.m., September 30, 1888, Israel Schwartz of 22 Helen Street, Back Church Lane, stated that at this hour, on turning into Burner Street from Commercial Road and having got as far as the gateway where the murder was committed, he saw a man stop and speak to a woman who was standing in the gateway. The man tried to pull the woman into the street, but he turned around and threw her down on the footway, and the woman screamed three times, but not very loudly. On crossing to the opposite side of the street, he saw a second man standing, lighting his pipe. The man who threw the woman down called out apparently to the man on the opposite side of the road, Lipsky. And then Schwartz walked away, but finding that he was followed by the second man, he ran so far as the railway arch, but the man did not follow so far. Schwartz cannot say whether the two men were together or known to each other. Upon being taken to the mortuary, Schwartz identified the body as that of the woman he had seen, and he thus described the first man who threw the woman down, age about 30, height 5 foot 5, fair hair, 
dark, small brown mustache, full face, broad-shouldered, dress, dark jacket and trousers, black cap with peak, had nothing in his hands. The second man was described as older, age 35, height 5 foot 11, light brown hair, brown mustache, dress dark overcoat, old black hard felt hat, wide brim, had a clay pipe in his hand. Also according to Schwartz, on the three men on Burner Street at that time, he, Schwartz, was the only one of Semitic appearance. That was also a key, if he was correct. The black cap with a peak closely matches another witness description from the later murder of Eddowes, given by a witness named Lavender, who described a black cloth hat with a peak. Schwartz's witness testimony in the Star on the 1st of October, 1888, showed some distinct differences between the two interviews, the one previously given being the police interview. In the Star, the first man was described as intoxicated and was trying to push stride into Dutfield's yard instead of out into the street. The second man yelled a warning at Schwartz, possibly intended for the killer to hear. Not the first, and his pipe had been replaced now by a knife. The physical descriptions of both men were given a little differently in the paper. Also, the Star reported that the truth of the man's statement is not wholly accepted. The official files refute this, showing that his statement was taken quite seriously. Schwartz did not speak English, so the Star may have experienced a translation problem or embellished the story. The official files show that the police accepted the statement made by Schwartz and found him to be a credible witness. First, the suspected killer's use of the name Lipsky meant that he had familiarity with the history of the immediate area. In the previous year, just one block east of Burner Street, a Polish Jew named Israel Lipsky murdered Miriam Angel, a fellow lodger, at 16 Batty Street. Miriam Angel, who was also Jewish, was killed on 28th of June, 1887. Nitric acid had been poured down her throat. Israel Lipsky was sent to trial for the crime, with Justice James Fitzjames Stephen presiding. The trial received plenty of attention in the newspapers. As a result of the controversy generated by the press and the questions about how the case was being handled, the Home Office put a great deal of pressure on Judge Stephen for a convincing conclusion to the case. Eventually, Israel Lipsky confessed and was hanged at Newgate on the 22nd of August of that year. First, we'll ponder for a moment on why the killer spoke out at all and why he spoke the word Lipsky. One, he knew there were two men standing not far away who had seen him assaulting the woman. He did not know Schwartz. We do not know if he knew the second, older man, who was holding either a pipe or a knife. Since the second man started after Schwartz, either in an attempt to frighten him away or to leave the area in the same direction, let's assume for a moment that it was a knife. If this is so, it seems that in this murder, the killer had an accomplice. In all the police findings, it was unanimous that the killer acted alone, probably due to the fact that no accomplice could stomach the sheer brutality of the murders. If it was a pipe, who would stand there and light a pipe as they watched a woman being beaten and crying for help. One would either walk away or call for a constable, and constables were always around within a block or two. 
When you read these reports, in the Star interview, Schwartz said it was the second man who shouted Lipsky and not the assumed killer. And they may have shouted Lipsky to Schwartz, who was easily recognizable as Jewish, to scare him off. Or he could have shouted it to the second man for the same reason, or both. After the well-publicized trial of Lipsky, his name became synonymous not only as a hateful epithet describing a Jew, but with violent death, as in, you might get Lipskied if you tell anyone about this. Schwartz also told the police that the assumed killer was intoxicated. How did he know? Did the man stagger? Or when he spoke that one word, did he say it in a drunken manner? Schwartz said he spoke in a sharp voice, so it must have been his stagger. And here is another strong possibility. The second man was Jack the Ripper. He was watching to see what the outcome would be between the drunken man and the prostitute. With Schwartz scared off, he could also scare away the drunk with a few flashes of the knife. Whoever that second man was, he never showed up as a witness and was never seen or identified again, despite a thorough police search all over the area. In the same report, Detective Aberline stated that the word Lipsky was used as an insult if addressing a Jew, and Schwartz had a strong Jewish appearance. Schwartz was questioned at length by Aberline, but could not say to whom the Lipsky remark was addressed. Aberline believed it was directed at him. It is a reasonable assumption. Out of the three visible men in Burner Street at that time, Schwartz was the only one, according to his own statement, of Semitic appearance. Aberline's experience in the East End lends considerable weight to his conclusions. But contemporary evidence must be found before his views can be supported. One more interesting example to ponder is the use of Lipsky as graffiti, or graffito as it called it then, describing the area around Pynchon Street where the torso of a woman was found four days earlier. The East London Observer wrote on September 14, 1889, Not far from the arch where the headless trunk was found, a pedestrian exploring the neighborhood would find himself in Burner Street, where Elizabeth Stride was brutally murdered on September 30th last year. And if he proceeded a little further, he would traverse the dull and wretched Batty Street, where Lipsky foully murdered his landlady, for which he was afterwards hanged at the Old Bailey. That the memory of this notorious criminal is still fresh in the minds of the inhabitants around is shown by the fact that on a black paling opposite the arch under which the unknown body was hidden, someone had written the word Lipsky in large chalk letters. Whether done before the discovery or after, no one seems to know, but the name was there. There's no question that Lipsky was an epithet and in use in the East End. The reason why only the latter term has survived is mainly due to Jack the Ripper. The Lipsky case faded from memory as the Ripper legend continued to grow. By 1888, the crimes of Burke and Hare were, were too well known for even the Ripper to erase. Yet today, few are aware of Israel Lipsky. At 1 a.m., Louis Demschultz, a jewelry salesman, entered Dutfield's yard driving his cart and pony. Immediately at the entrance, his pony shied and refused to proceed. Demschultz suspected something was in the way, but could not see since the yard was utterly pitch black. He probed forward with his whip and came into contact with a body whom he initially believed to be either drunk or asleep. He then entered the International Working Men's Educational Club to get some help in rousing the woman, and upon returning to the yard with Isaac 
Kozabrodsky, and Morris Eagle, the three discover that she was dead, her throat cut. It was believed that Dime Schultz's arrival frightened the Ripper, causing him to flee before he performed the mutilations. Dime Schultz himself stated that he believed the Ripper was still in the yard when he had entered, due to the warm temperature of the body and the continually odd behavior of his pony. Dr. Frederick Blackwell of 100 Commercial Road was called. He arrived at 1.16 a.m. and pronounced Stride dead at the scene. The day after the murder, a citizen mob formed outside of Burner Street, protesting the continuation of the murders and the seemingly slipshod work of the police to catch the Ripper. From here on in, the Ripper is public enemy number one, and Home Office begins to consider offering rewards for his capture and arrest. Less than one hour after Stride's body was discovered, Kate Eddo's body was also found. It was found at Mitre Square in the city of London, three quarters of an hour after Stride's. The throat was severed and the abdomen was ripped open by a long, deep, jagged wound. The left kidney and the major part of the uterus had been removed. A local man named Joseph Lawende had passed through the square with his two friends shortly before the murder, and he described a fair-haired man of shabby appearance with a woman who may have been Edo's. Edo's ear was listed in the post-mortem as having been partially cut off during the attack, which was extremely violent, cutting and slashing her face and body, opening her stomach and intestines, wrapping her intestines over her shoulder, and removing her kidney, which was never found. The missing ear validated the Ripper boss letter and launched the papers into a new frenzy. She had been wearing a full-length apron, half of which had been cut away by the killer, either to wipe his knife and hands or to carry away the victim's kidney. The apron was found hours later, blocks away, lying on the pavement on Goulston Street in front of an apartment building in the Jewish sector, with the words, Jews are men who won't be blamed for nothing, appearing in chalk scrawled on a doorfront. Neither the apron nor the chalk scrawl had been seen by a passing constable at 2.20 a.m. that same morning. Rather than take a photograph of the chalk message, in order to match the handwriting, the police had it washed off the next morning. There were a number of witnesses of Edo's movements that evening, but the one that placed her with a man just minutes before her death was taken very seriously by the police. This was given by Joseph Lewende also known as Joseph Lavender, who, in the company of Joseph Hyam Levy and Harry Harris, saw a man and woman standing at the corner of Duke Street and Church Passage, leading to Mitre Square, at around 1.35 a.m. on the morning of the 30th of September, 1888, about 10 minutes before the body of Catherine Eddowes was discovered in Mitre Square. Lewende and Levy were identified as witnesses as a result of a house-to-house inquiry made in the vicinity of Mitre Square on the orders of Inspector Edward Collard on the 30th of September. On the 9th of October, the Evening News printed a report on the three witnesses describing Lewende as Joseph Lavander, a commercial traveler in or manufacturer of cigarettes, whose business premises are in St. Mary Axe, corner of Berry Street. Lewende gave evidence at Edo's inquest on the 11th of October. Described as a commercial traveler of 45 Norfolk Road, Dalston, he testified that the three men were prevented from going home because it was raining. They went out of the club at about 1.30 a.m., fixed by the club clock and Lewende's watch, and left the building about five minutes later. According to one report, Levy said that the court ought to be watched. 
The couple was standing at the corner of Church Passage, which led from Duke Street to Mitre Square. The woman was standing with her back to Lewende, wearing a black jacket and black bonnet. He had been shown Edo's clothing at the police station and believed it was the same he had seen on the woman. The woman appeared to be short, about five feet high, according to one report, and the man was taller. The woman had her hand on the man's chest, but not as if to push him away. They did not appear to be quarreling, but conversing quietly. Lewende did not hear a word they said. He did not look back to see where they went. The first publication of the description of the man seen by Lewende was in the Times on the 2nd of October. He described him of shabby appearance, about 30 years of age and five foot nine in height, a fair complexion, having a small fair mustache and wearing a red neckerchief and a cap with a peak. Otherwise, the description does not seem to have been circulated widely immediately after the murder. The article in the Evening News on the 9th of October criticized what it called the idiotic secrecy of the police, which had caused the delay in making public the partial descriptions provided by the witnesses. The following month, an article in the Daily Telegraph criticized the fact that the description had been circulated among the police but withheld from the public. The article suggested that the aspect the police had particularly wished to suppress was the suspect's resemblance to a sailor. At the inquest, Lewende said he doubted whether he would know the man again, and this is also stated in police reports. He said in court that he had a cloth cap on with the cloth peak, and according to one report, that he looked rather rough and shabby. But Henry Crawford, the city solicitor, requested that no further description of the man should be given. The description of the man seen by two men coming out of a club is given in a report by Donald Swanson as age 30, height 5 foot 7 or 8, fair hair, mustache, medium build, dress, pepper and salt color loose jacket, gray cloth cap with peak of same color, reddish handkerchief tied in a knot round neck, appearance of a sailor. Essentially, the same description was eventually published in the Police Gazette on the 19th of October, 1888. Another version of the man's description is given in an undated home office document written in or after July of 1889. Age 30 to 35, height 5 foot 7, with brown hair and a big mustache. Dressed respectably, wore a pea jacket, muffler, and cloth cap with a peak of the same material. The last of the canonical Ripper victims was Mary Jane Kelly. Mary Jane Kelly was approximately 25 years old at the time of her death, which would place her birth around 1863. She was 5 foot 7 inches tall and stout. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, and a fair complexion, said to have been possessed of considerable personal attractions. She was last seen wearing a linsey frock and a red shawl pulled around her shoulders. She was bareheaded. Detective Constable Walter Dew claimed to know Kelly well by sight and said that she was attractive and paraded around, usually in the company of two or three friends. He said she always wore a spotlessly clean white apron. Maria Harvey, a friend, says that she was much superior to that of most persons in her position in life. It was also said that she spoke fluent Welsh. Joseph Barnett says that he always found her of sober habits. Landlord John McCarthy said, when in liquor, she was very noisy. Otherwise, she was a very quiet woman. Almost everything that is known about Mary Jane Kelly comes from Joseph Barnett, who lived with her just prior to the murder. He, of course, had all this information from Kelly herself. Some is conflicting, 
and it may be suspected that some, or perhaps much of it, is embellished. Barnett was a suspect himself in her murder, but released after four hours of questioning. On Wednesday, November 7th, Mary Jane bought a halfpenny candle from McCarthy's shop. She was later seen in Miller's court by Thomas Boyer, a pensioned soldier whose nickname is Indian Harry. He's employed by McCarthy and lives at 37 Dorset Street. Boyer stated that on Wednesday night, he saw a man speaking to Kelly who closely resembled the description of the man Matthew Packer claims to have seen with Elizabeth Stride. His appearance was smart and attention was drawn to him by his very white cuffs and rather long white collar, which came down over the front of his long black coat. He did not carry a bag. Thursday, Friday, November 8th and 9th, almost every day after the split, Barnett would visit Mary Jane. On Friday the 9th, he stops between 7.30 and 7.45 p.m. He says she's in the company of another woman who lives in Miller's Court. This may have been Lizzie Albrook, who lived at 2 Miller's Court. Albrook says, About the last thing she said to me was, Whatever you do, don't you do wrong and turn out as I did. She had often spoken to me in this way and warned me against going on the street as she had done. She told me, too, that she was heartily sick of the life she was leading and wished she had enough money to go back to Ireland where her people lived. I do not believe she would have gone out as she did if she had not been obliged to do so to keep herself from starving. Maria Harvey also says that she was the woman that Barnett saw with Mary Jane and that she left at 6.55 p.m. At 8 p.m., Barnett left and went back to Buller's boarding house where he played whist until 12.30 a.m. and then went to bed. There are no confirmed sightings of Mary Jane Kelly between 8 p.m. and 11.45 p.m. There is an unconfirmed story that she's drinking with a woman named Elizabeth Foster at the Ten Bells Public House. By 11 p.m., it's said that she's in the Britannia drinking with a young man with a dark mustache who appears respectable and well-dressed. It is said she is very drunk. At 11.45 p.m., Mary Ann Cox, a 31-year-old widower and prostitute who lives at 5 Miller's Court, the last house on the left, enters Dorset Street from Commercial Street. Cox is returning home to warm herself as the night had turned cold. She sees Kelly ahead of her, walking with a stout man. The man was aged around 35 or 36 and was about 5 foot 5 inches tall. He was shabbily dressed in a long overcoat and a billycock hat. He had a blotchy face and small side whiskers and a carroty mustache. The man is carrying a pail of beer. Mrs. Cox follows them into Miller's court. They're standing outside Kelly's room as Mrs. Cox passed and said, Good night. Somewhat incoherently, Kelly replied, Good night. I am going to sing. A few minutes later, Mrs. Cox hears Kelly singing, A Violet from Mother's Grave. Cox goes out again at midnight and hears Kelly singing the same song. Somewhere in this time period, Mary Jane takes a meal of fish and potatoes. At 12.30 a.m., Catherine Pickett, a flower seller who lives near Kelly, is disturbed by Kelly's singing. Pickett's husband stops her from going downstairs to complain. You leave the poor woman alone, he says. At 1 a.m., it is beginning to rain. Again, Marianne Cox returns home to warm herself. At that time, Kelly is still singing, or has begun to sing again. There was light coming from Kelly's room. Shortly after one, Cox goes out again. Elizabeth Prater, the wife of William Prater, a boot finisher who has left her five years before, is standing at the entrance to Miller's Court, waiting for a man. 
Prater lives in room number 20 of 26 Dorset Street. This is directly above Kelly. She stands there about half an hour, then goes into McCarthy's to chat. She hears no singing and sees no one go in or out of the court. After a few minutes, she goes back to her room, places two chairs in front of her door, and goes to sleep without undressing. She is very drunk. 2 a.m., George Hutchinson, a resident of the Victoria Working Men's Home on Commercial Street, has just returned to the area from Romford. He is walking on Commercial Street and passes a man at the corner of Thrall Street, but pays no attention to him. At Flower and Dean Street, he meets Kelly, who asks him for money. Mr. Hutchinson, can you lend me sixpence? I can't, says Hutchinson. I spent all my money going down to Romford. Good morning, Kelly replies. I must go and find some money. She then walks in the direction of Thrall Street. This is 2 a.m. Hutchinson watches her as she meets the man Hutchinson had passed earlier. The man puts his hand on Kelly's shoulder and says something at which Kelly and the man laugh. Hutchinson hears Kelly say, All right. And the man say, You'll be all right for what I've told you. The man then puts his right hand on Kelly's shoulder and they begin to walk towards Dorset Street. Hutchison notices that the man has a small parcel in his left hand. While standing under a street light, outside the Queen's Head public house, Hutchison gets a good look at the man with Mary Jane Kelly. He has a pale complexion, a slight mustache turned up at the corners, and the press changed this to dark complexion and heavy mustache in the press reports. Dark hair, dark eyes, and bushy eyebrows. He is, according to Hutchinson, of Jewish appearance. The man is wearing a soft felt hat pulled down over his eyes, a long dark coat trimmed in astrakhan, a white collar with a black necktie fixed with a horseshoe pin. He wears dark spats over light button over boots. A massive gold chain is in his waistcoat with a large seal with a red stone hanging from it. He carries kid gloves in his right hand and a small package in his left. He is five foot six or five seven tall and about 35 or 36 years old. Kelly and the man cross Commercial Street and turn down Dorset Street. Hutchinson follows them. Kelly and the man stop outside Miller's Court and talk for about three minutes. Kelly is heard to say, all right, my dear, come along. You will be comfortable. The man puts his arm around Kelly who kisses him. I've lost my handkerchief, she says. At this point, he hands her a red handkerchief. The couple then head down Miller's Court. Hutchison waits until the clock strikes 3 a.m., leaving as the clock strikes the hour. Hutchinson's testimony has since been put into question by some pretty serious ripperologists. What they found was that the locations he gave for both himself and the couple were way out of line with the reality of different locations in the neighborhood. He also made it a point to identify the man walking with Kelly as a Jew. It's very possible that Hutchinson was somehow a part of this murder and was trying to redirect the police focus, which at that time was looking for a stocky man with a carroty mustache and dressed quite differently. Also brings to mind shades of the murderer shouting, Lipsky, knowing that there was a witness not far from where he attacked Stride, again possibly trying to connect Jews with the murder which was just about to take place. At 3 a.m., Mrs. Cox returns home yet again. 
It is raining hard. There's no sound or light coming from Kelly's room. Cox does not go back out, but does not go to sleep. Throughout the night, she occasionally hears men going in and out of the court. She told the inquest, I heard someone go out at a quarter to six. I do not know what house he went out of, as I heard no doors shut. At 4 a.m., Elizabeth Prater is wakened by her pet kitten, Diddles, walking on her neck. She hears a faint cry of, Oh, murder! But as the cry of murder is common in the district, she pays no attention to it. Sarah Lewis, who is staying with friends in Miller's Court, also hears the cry. At 8.30 a.m., Carolyn Maxwell, a witness at the inquest, an acquaintance of Kelly's, claims to have seen the deceased at around 8.30 a.m., several hours after the time given by Phillips as the time of death. She described her clothing and appearance in depth and adamantly stated that she was not mistaken about the date, although she admitted she did not know Kelly very well. 10 o'clock a.m., Maurice Lewis, a tailor who resided in Dorset Street, told newspapers he had seen Kelly and Barnett in the Horn of Plenty public house on the night of the murder, but more importantly, that he saw her about 10 a.m. the next day. Like Maxwell, this time is several hours from the time of death, and because of this discrepancy, he was not called to the inquest and virtually ignored by the police. 10.45 a.m., John McCarthy, owner of McCarthy's Rents, as Miller's Court was known, sends Thomas Boyer to collect past due rent money from Mary Kelly. After Boyer received no response from knocking, and because the door was locked, he pushes aside the curtain and peers inside, seeing the body. He informs McCarthy, who, after seeing the mutilated remains of Kelly for himself, runs the Commercial Street Police Station, where he spoke with Inspector Walter Beck, who returned to the court with McCarthy. Several hours later, after waiting fruitlessly for the arrival of the bloodhounds Barnaby and Burgo, McCarthy smashes in the door with an axe handle under orders from Superintendent Thomas Arnold. The police were to receive heavy criticism due to the two hours of waiting outside the room because the owner of the bloodhounds had apparently decided that since he had not been paid for his last services, he wasn't going to be providing any more. When police enter the room, they find Mary Jane Kelly's clothes neatly folded on a chair and she is wearing a chemise. Her boots are in front of the fireplace. Dr. Thomas Bond, a distinguished police surgeon from A Division, was called in on the Mary Kelly murder. The body had been totally mutilated. Although pieces were lying all over the room and around the remains of the body, only the heart was missing. At 8 a.m. the following morning, a tailor living in Dorset Street claimed to have seen Mary Kelly leave her room and return a few moments later. Then at 10 a.m., he was playing pitch and toss in McCarthy's court, after which he and his companions went to the Britannia. There, Lewis was certain he saw Kelly drinking with some other people, but was not sure if a man was with them. Forty-five minutes later, Thomas Boyer discovered Kelly's mutilated body in Miller's court. All this provides an excellent example of what the police had to deal with, with so many different witness interpretations of what they saw. It was mind-boggling. This was the statement of Caroline Maxwell, a witness at Mary Jane Kelly's inquest. In her initial statement taken on the 9th of November, 1888, Maxwell said that she had known Kelly for about four months 
believed her to be an unfortunate, earning her living in that way since Joseph Barnett had left her. Mrs. Maxwell and Kelly were on speaking terms. She saw Mary at the corner of Miller's Court between 8 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. on the morning of 9th of November, saying she was sure of the time as she was taking some plates her husband had borrowed back to the house opposite. She spoke to Kelly, asking her why she was up so early, to which Kelly replied that she had had the horrors of drink upon her as she had been drinking for some days previously. Mrs. Maxwell suggested she go and have a drink in Mrs. Ringer's, which is the Britannia, but Kelly replied that she had already done so and brought it up pointed to some vomit in the road. Maxwell left, saying that she pitied her feelings. From there she went on to an errand at Bishopsgate. On returning, Maxwell saw Kelly again at about 8.45 a.m. outside the Britannia, talking to a man. He was about 30 years of age, stout of build, about 5 foot 5 inches tall, and dressed like a market porter. Market porter meaning a fishmonger, which would have matched the fishmonger outfit her late boyfriend, Joseph Barnett, would have worn. They had a stormy relationship and had recently split, after which she had turned to prostitution, which had made him extremely angry. And when he had left, he had taken her key. A key was required to lock and unlock her door, and when she was found, she was found alone inside her locked apartment, meaning the killer would have had to have locked the door on his way out. As Mrs. Maxwell was quite a distance away, she didn't believe she would recognize him again. Kelly was wearing a dark dress, velvet body, and a maroon shawl. At the inquest, 12th of November, 1888, Maxwell was warned by Coroner Roderick McDonald, stating, You must be very careful about your evidence, because it is different to other people's. Her testimony added a few other details to her original statement, that she had only spoken to Mary twice, that the man seen with Kelly was wearing dark clothes and a sort of plaid coat, that the man was not wearing a tall silk hat, and that if he was, she would have noticed. Caroline Maxwell's account of her meeting with Kelly is controversial in that it puts the encounter several hours after the supposed time of death, which Dr. Thomas Bond put as being around 1 to 2 a.m. Dr. George Baxter Phillips deduced that death occurred much later, around 5.15 to 6.15 a.m. But even so, this is still over two hours before Maxwell's encounter. It is quite possible that she was wrong in her timing of the incidents described, though she was adamant about the time on account of the returning of the borrowed plates. Important to keep in mind that determining time of death was still an unsettled science in 1888. Some 50 years later, Walter Dew commented, if Mrs. Maxwell had been a sensation seeker, one of those women who lived for the limelight, it would have been easy to discredit her story, but she was not. She seemed a sane and sensible woman, and her reputation was excellent. In one way, at least, her version fitted into the facts as known. We knew that Marie had been drinking the previous night, and as this was not a habit of hers, illness the next morning was just what might have been expected. In any case, Maxwell's claims and those of Maurice Lewis, who believed he saw Mary even later that morning, have inspired a number of theories surrounding Mary Kelly's death, including the idea that it might not have been Mary she was talking to, or even the notion that the doctors were wrong. 
As with the claims of Caroline Maxwell, Morris Lewis's statements are controversial, as he apparently twice sees Kelly several hours after she was supposed to have been killed. And so we have the five canonical victims of the Ripper, and we have a lot of witness statements for you to ponder. The name Jack the Ripper was first used in the Dear Boss letter by the signatory and gained worldwide notoriety after its publication. Most of the letters that followed copied this letter's tone. Some sources claim that another letter dated 17th of September, 1888, was the first to use the name Jack the Ripper. But most experts believe that this was a fake inserted into police records in the 20th century. Coincidentally, at that time in London, a gang called the Ripper Boys, known for their use of knives to attack and rob people, was operating, and the letter writer probably compounded the two names Jack from the early suspect Jack Pizer and the Ripper from the Ripper Boys. The saucy Jackie postcard was postmarked 1st of October, 1888, and was received the same day by the Central News Agency. The handwriting was similar to the Dear Boss letter. The murderer mentions that two victims were just killed very close to one another. Double event this time, which was thought to refer to the murders of Stride and Eddowes. It has been argued that the letter was posted before the murders were publicized, making it unlikely that a crank would have such knowledge of the crime but it was postmarked more than 24 hours after the killings took place, long after details were known and being published by journalists and talked about by residents of the area. So it could have been a hoax. In fact, it was a hoax, if you believe the confession that came years later, in 1931, from a journalist named Fred Best, who reportedly confessed to writing the Dear Boss letter and Saucy Jack postcard in an attempt to keep the business alive. It is not known if his claims were genuine, but it is probable. Here's the story. In their 20th century memoirs, senior police officials had publicly aired their belief that the Dear Boss letter was the creation of a London journalist. Robert Anderson said, I will only add here that the Jack the Ripper letter, which is preserved in the Police Museum at New Scotland Yard, is the creation of an enterprising London journalist. Scotland Yard's man, Melville McNaughton, wrote, in this ghastly production, I've always thought I could discern the stained forefinger of the journalist. Indeed, a year later, I had shrewd suspicions as to the actual author. It was not until 1966 that a possible name for the author first came to light. It was published in an article in the August edition of Crime and Detection, in which the author claims to have used a very spry and clear-minded 70-year-old ex-journalist named Best as a contact in 1931. Returning homewards with me, Best discussed murders, the Whitechapel murders in particular. With much amplifying detail, he talked of his days as a penny-a-liner on the Star newspaper. As a freelance, he had covered the Whitechapel murders from the discovery of Tabram. He claimed that he and a provincial colleague were responsible for all the Ripper letters to keep the business alive. Let's not confuse the issue and just accept that it was the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jackie postcard, of which he was speaking. In 2009, Andrew Cook published the name Frederick Best as being the journalist in question. On pages 102 to 106 of Andrew Cook's book, the findings of handwriting expert Elaine Quigley were shown. Excerpts from the Dear Boss letter were compared with handwriting alleged to be that of Frederick Best, his example being written in the late 1890s. 
Quigley is quoted as saying that after careful consideration, I am as sure as I can be. I really do not think that it's anyone other than Best that wrote the Dear Boss letter. So here's the irony of the century. A penny-a-line newspaper writer, in order to add a few more pennies to his meager income by sensationalizing a life-and-death story and throwing a huge red herring in the path of a massive police investigation, actually coined the name Jack the Ripper. They should create a Frederick Best Award for fake journalism. I'm sure there would be no shortage of applicants out there today for the nomination committee. If you've been following the press accounts with this entire story, you will have noted that the press accounts often differ from the police reports. The press will add a knife to a hand where formerly there was, let's say, a pipe. Or they'll change a description to describe the possible offender as Jewish, when in fact the witness described him in a totally opposite manner. That their job was to sell newspapers, and not always to get the story straight. But we still have a number of murders to solve, and you've been given all the facts. Now it's time to look at the suspects, and there are many. Here are just a few names and stories you'll be hearing in the next week's episode. Jack the Ripper, Finding the Killer. Aaron Kosminski, the insane Polish Jew who worked as a barber in Whitechapel during the time of the murders, and the man that left DNA on a victim's shawl, as apparently proved by one researcher and author. Montague John Dritt, an Oxford-educated man who many thought was insane and who lived in Whitechapel and was believed by Detective McNaughton to be Jack the Ripper. Drewitt's body was found floating in the Thames just weeks after Mary Jane Kelly's murder. Carl Figenbaum was a known psychopath who confessed to mutilating women and was working as a merchant on ships that were docked near Whitechapel in September of 1888. His own lawyer, and apparently he needed one often, believed he was Jack the Ripper. Francis Craig. In recent years, ripperologists have begun to believe that Mary Jane Kelly's husband, Francis Craig, a reporter at the time of the murders, and we'll tell you why they believed it might be him. Walter Sickert. Author Patricia Cornwall believed artist Walter Sickert, who painted portraits of prostitutes, which she said contained clues to the murders, was the Ripper, and says she found mitochondrial DNA on some of the Ripper letters to prove it. Albert Victor Edward, the Duke of Clarence. The suggestion that Eddie was Jack the Ripper was first made in 1962 by Felipe Julian in the book Edward V II, Edward and the Edwardians. Julian made a reference to rumors that Eddie and the Duke of Bedford were responsible for the murders, but did not say which Duke of Bedford was actually involved. It was an article by Dr. Thomas Stowell, writing in The Criminologist in November of 1970, which caused a sensation. Stowell apparently used the private papers of Sir William Gull as his source material and pointed the finger of suspicion at Eddie without actually naming him, instead using the letter S when referring to his suspect. And there was Frederick Deeming, who was the subject of a 2011 documentary titled Jack the Ripper, the Australian Suspect, hosted by forensic expert Robert Knapper. And Francis Tumulty, the quack doctor who was constantly being chased by the police, had a huge fascination and collection of embryos which he liked to show off and was in Whitechapel during the time of the murders, was arrested for a different offense, let go, and quickly escaped to New York City. 
where, shortly after, the badly mutilated body of Carrie Brown was discovered. One of the main detectives working on the Whitechapel murders believed that Tumulty was Jack the Ripper. And so many more. Names like Severin Kloslowski, a major suspect, known to the police as George Chapman. James Kelly, who had escaped from Broadmoor and supposedly began his killing rampage within weeks after his escape in Whitechapel. There was H.H. H. Holmes, often called the American Ripper, known for his murder hotel in Chicago during the exposition there, and previously mentioned Joseph Barnett, who was arrested at the time of the Miller Court Affair and interrogated for four hours, then released. This is an incredible mystery, which to date has not been definitively solved. That's why we call it Britain's Greatest Unsolved Mystery. We'll present all the major suspects and the theories and present our own case. Coming up next week in Jack the Ripper, Part 2, Finding the Killer. You don't want to miss this one. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast is heard and enjoyed worldwide by our growing network of fans. And we enjoy hearing from you at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes and at Twitter, address at 1001podcast. Or you can email us at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. Today's sponsor is The Great Courses Plus, which is offering you by going to our special URL at thegreatcoursesplus.com forward slash 1001. Well, I've got to get busy on my 1001 classic short stories for this week. As promised, October is Jack London month, and you fans have proved that so far London is by far your favorite of the classic authors that we do there. Our most listened to London episode is A Piece of Steak. Be sure to catch it. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. (laughs) 